The logic of the scripture is clear. Think of a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 6. And there's a passage that Christians will understand with the ring of the familiar, but I don't think they often pause to understand what the Lord said through Moses to Israel. Uh, They're the children of Israel who are after the generation of rebellion, are getting ready to enter the land of promise. And uh, you'll recall that God speaks through Moses and says, after the re-giving of the Ten Commandments, yeah. he said, now, when your son comes to you in days to come, saying, what are the meaning of the statutes in these commandments? Then you shall say to your son. Mm-hmm. And then it speaks to the diligence that Israel's parents are going to have to teach their children. And it says, and you're going out and you're coming in and you're standing up and you're sitting down. That's a Hebrew way of saying all the time. Yeah. yeah. All <laughs> the time. You know, when you're breathing and when you're not breathing, yeah. you know, you need to be teaching your children the law of God, yeah. teaching your children the word of God. And so I turn back to that text over and over again. And yeah. you know, the other sweet thing there is that phrase, which comes up again in Joshua chapter four and elsewhere. Mm. When your son asks you in days to come, what is the meaning of these stones, these yeah. laws, these commandments? Then you shall say to your son. Notice the pronoun there, your son. Mm. This is your wow. responsibility. Okay. The future of Israel depends upon one father mm. rightfully answering the question of one son. This is a Living Waters breaking news alert. After 50 consecutive years of ministry, Ray Comfort is calling it quits. Along with establishing a 5 million acre banana farm, Ray Comfort is pursuing his lifelong dream of chicken coop building. His new business is called Getting You All Cooped Up. <laughs> oh, that was so Oh, that good. sounds like a dream. Seriously. <laughs> so, Ray, you, you, you've gone on this new adventure. Bananas what and is chickens? it with you and chicken coop? 24 chickens. You just helped Daniel, your son, mm-hmm. my expand son Daniel, his chicken coop. Expand his chicken coop. Mm-hmm, so, what, what was that all about? I get pictures of this chicken coop. It was coop just expansion. wonderful bonding with my son as we worked on this chicken coop last week for a whole day. And uh, making the chickens happy because chickens lay eggs. I don't know if you know. That's true. You can poach, <laughs> fry, scramble, or boil them, and they're good for you. Eggs. Mm. Yeah. How many chickens does he have? About eighteen, I think. Oh, oh. what a young buck! Mm-hmm. Are you going to be influencing him to get more, Ray? I would like to surprise him with more, maybe yeah. for birthdays and things like that. How chickens. many do you have, Ray? Twenty-four. One oh. died yesterday. Oh, mm. praise the Lord. Oh, were you sad, Ray? Oh, I don't have to handle it. Sue does. Do you name them all? <laughs> he makes his wife dispose of his finger licking and things like fried that. and fried crispy and, and crispy. tender. Yes. Yeah. You still have the axe up in the coop? I used to, but I needed it. <laughs> what will it be, ladies? Yes, eggs. <laughs> What's a chicken? chicken. <laughs> have you ever had a possessed chicken? Yes. Yeah, that was, uh, mm. what was her name? Betty. Betty. Where did you get her Betty? from, Betty? Right? Uh, Oscar gave <laughs> <laughs> You pawn off your possessed chicken. We did. Right? We thought, uh, well, okay, so here's what happens. When you have like an aggressive chicken and you introduce them into a new flock, herd, I don't know what you call them. A herd of chickens? Herd, yeah. Well, that's I've, not right. Of course I've heard of chickens. <laughs> uh, a new flock, she's supposed to be at the bottom of the pecking order. But crazy Betty showed up at Ray's backyard and just immediately Tops. moved to the top of the pecking order. Yeah. Ray, She'd sit right up top and look down on all the other chickens. Do you still have Betty? You? No, we got, you got rid of it, didn't you? Throw mm-hmm. her a farmer's fence. Had it for lunch. I donated it. You did? To heaven. <laughs> to did to breeders. To heaven. To heaven. Did, did you kill Betty? Stop. You killed Betty? Well, I, I don't remember. Is that the one I donated to heaven or that might be the one I donated to the farmer? No, you just put it on the fence. Ray, if you could, because I know you can't in your area, but if you could, would you get a rooster? 
Roost, no, because they don't know what the time is. They start crowing at about 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're really annoying. Roosters are pretty vicious, too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I'm getting visions of Mark being chased by roosters. Has that ever happened to you, Mark? I don't think so. I can see it, though, happening. <laughs> For <laughs> some, Do they taste like chicken? <laughs> Do roosters taste like chicken? Mark, when we went to Africa, to Uganda... Yes. Oh, don't, did, don't give that did story. You, did you kill a chicken, too, or no? No, I purchased a chicken for, I think, three pennies, and uh, we went to a gas station, and they cooked it for us. (laughs) It took like three hours. You're serious? It was really at a gas station? I was with Dave Zavala. Yeah, Dave Zavala. I thought you were with me, no? No, I would not have participated in such a thing. He was haggling over three pennies. I went, wow, that is amazing. Dave lives to haggle. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. It haggles to live. Yeah, that's true. Well, friends, uh, here's a comment. This is from uh, Jesus V2323 to all you guys. Podcast is great. I feel like it's fresh air. I do long drives throughout Dallas, and I'm able to hear your episodes, and it keeps my mind occupied for the things of God. Wow. Isn't that cool? You know, the thought of people actually driving on, on long trips. My cousin... Tina, Mike hey, Tina, shout out to Tina, my cousin, Mike Husson, <laughs> Mike, <laughs> Mike Husson. I'm sure there's someone with the last name Husson sure. out there. We'll get a letter from them. But my beloved cousin Tina just uh, left me a message the other day. She's on like episode 100 and something, and she's just still listening and getting wow. encouraged. Thank and, you, Tina. Yeah, mm. thanks for listening there, Tina. Uh, but yeah, but she's she says she listens a lot deaf. when she drives. What's that? She's that deaf cousin. <laughs> she can't hear anything. She listens to it in braille. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's, it is encouraging. So thank you for that, our dear friend. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Divine Dining, Foods from the Bible. Uh, this unique cookbook by award-winning chef Lance Nitahara and award- yeah, film, award-winning filmmaker and author Ray Comfort utilizes foods mentioned in the world's best-selling book of all time. Ray, what is it with you in a cookbook? It's so tasteful. <laughs> tastefully done and it really is it's very classy Lynn Copeland did a wonderful job yeah it's our editor yeah it's really good it is it does have like a papery finish though you can actually s- scratch and sniff it <laughs> <laughs> but Ray why are you so random a cookbook well, uh, no. have you uh, met Ray <clears throat> Comfort 101 things by all means by all means uh, so this cookbook has the gospel on it that's what gives no. it a taste I so. gave someone your uh, book on panic attacks and they, they were said it tasted terrible <laughs> no, said, that's the wrong book he said it was just really impactful. Oh, that's really wonderful. So, and uh, yeah, Ray, you're a very random person. All right, friends, don't forget to check that out, along with the Evidence Study Bible and the Living Waters Podcast mugs. You've heard Oscar talk not long ago about uh, how we're doing uh, newer mugs and stuff like that. So check it out. Limited edition mugs. Get them now. Get them while they're hot. Yeah. And don't forget the Evidence Study Bible, all at livingwaters.com. All right, we talked about NRB. Nerb. I, I just want to point out that somewhere out there, Dr. Albert Mueller is going to give you a call and be like, you started my episode talking about <laughs> chickens I know books that you're going to eat. Yeah. Yeah. We interviewed Dr. Albert Mueller and what an experience. First of all, as you're going to hear on, you know, during the interview, I was utterly shocked that he does not write out the briefing. I thought for sure his staff writes it out, but no. He doesn't even write it out. I'm sure he has some little notes or something, but he basically goes off the cuff. It's unreal. I'm convinced he has at least three or four brains. <laughs> just just the, the, the brilliance. He's sitting and there. How and long even, do you guys spend with him? 
Oh, we had it about uh, 35, 40 Some minutes. Day, yeah. oh, but yeah. uh, who is Albert Muller? Yeah, so, yeah, he's a president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, which is the, the largest seminary in the world, uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he is an author and a speaker and, you know, just a, a very impactful Yeah. Does he, he have chickens? Does he have <laughs> Probably chickens? Probably not. Yeah. But, but my favorite moment in the entire... Uh, recording. Oh no! Here we is go. that we're sitting there, we're talking, and Dr. Albert Moeller, uh, president of the biggest. What did you say? President of the largest seminary in the world. I dug my own hole. Says with that, didn't I? Augustus. And then I look wait, at wait, Ray. Wait, wait. says easy. what? Says what? Augustine. Excuse me, Augustus. He <laughs> yes. says Augustus. Poetic Augustine. <laughs> he says Augustine, and I look at Easy, and then he says it again, Augustine, and I was like, "Let's go!" Yeah, yeah. It just shows that someone even so brilliant can sometimes get something wrong. Mm. Yeah, as you just did, by the way. All right, friends, there you have it. Without any further ado, and boy, was it encouraging. I'm sure it will be to you as well. Here is our dear brother, Dr. Albert Moeller. Well, friends, as you can tell by the background noise, yes, we are still at the NRB. Earlier, I was calling it a bit of a zoo. It's a a bit of a blessing in that we get to interact and connect with a lot of people, but uh, it's also uh, a bit busy, as you can tell. But I'm happy to say that we were able to grab hold of someone who's extremely busy. He's no stranger to many of you, our listeners, because I'm sure you've heard him on the briefing. Uh, We have with us today Dr. Albert Moeller. Dr. Moeller, it's such a blessing to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, thank you for your ministry and for the ways through which you've allowed the Lord to use you. And not only do you host the briefing, which, uh, like I said, most of our audience would be familiar with, but you're obviously also an author, you're an international speaker, and is it right, the ninth president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary? Yes, and uh, just completing 30 years in that role. Wow. 30 years, amazing. I I read somewhere you were in your 30s when you took the role. Yeah, so add 30 to that, and you've got pretty much where I am <laughs> We got right your now. age, yeah. Yeah. right. <laughs> wow. Well, what what a blessing. And, and obviously, I mentioned that uh, you're an author as well. You've written such books as The Gathering Storm, Tell Me the Story of Jesus, He is Not Silent, The Conviction to Lead, and many others. By the way, how many books is it now? I don't really know. <laughs> I, 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 I actually, that's an interesting question. I haven't really added them up. You know, you're like Ray Comfort. Uh, he hit, He's over 100 now. So he's just, he stopped counting. Yeah. Well, you know, that, 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 that in itself is an amazing number. That yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a long path of faithfulness there. Yeah. And For then, anybody who hasn't read any of his books, if I can recommend one to you, which is my favorite one, it was Convicted to Lead. And it mm-hmm. kind of gets into the story a little bit about you becoming the president of the seminary. Right. My biggest advocation for this book and what I can say is, you know, when I work... In finance, I was I was blessed to be a part of a leadership program, and, and they brought guys in from MIT and Stanford to help us develop as leaders. Mm-hmm. And with all of the books that I got to read in that program and all of the seminars that they had me attend, your book wasn't in it, but I read it afterwards. And if I was going to recommend one book on leadership, it would be Convicted to Lead. That's uh, incredibly kind. Thank you. And the second edition of that book is coming out in September. Oh, really? Oh. Uh, because of some of the events that have taken place in the culture. Yeah. Uh, in social media, just uh-huh. uh, one thing, and then uh, lessons from uh, the, uh, the the entire chaos of the last three or four years with COVID and everything else. Massive challenges to leadership, and I think once again, the only leadership that matters is convictional leadership. Yeah, and it shows. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, Doctor Moeller, I wanted to ask you. I mentioned the briefing already. That has had mm-hmm. such a massive impact. I'm blown away that you do this thing daily. 
And the main reason why I'm blown away is because of the quality of the production. And then you combine that with the fact that it's daily. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. You know, we do, we do a couple podcasts a week and that's a lot. But do you write those? Does your staff write them? They're just so well done. Well, I appreciate that. They're not written at all. I'm doing it entirely extemporaneously every single time. Seriously? Yeah. There's, there's no script. There'd be no time to develop <laughs> one. I wow. sometimes don't know exactly what issues I'm going to discuss when I sit down to record in the studio. Yeah. And it's because events happen sometimes right up until we end up, you know, recording. Yeah. And uh, so I did live uh, national radio for a decade. Okay. And uh, (laughs) there's no script for that. Yeah. And I kind of, and and by the way, I use very few notes when I preach. I I just, I seek to... uh, to operate without a, a manuscript. Really? And for the briefing, I just have to. Have you always have preached like that? Or is, or did that, is that something that came later on? Uh, in your it it developed, you know, over time. Uh, yeah, I was more dependent on, you know, some notes in the beginning. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with, with having them, especially sure. if, you know, if you're citing something or, yeah. you know, have a reason for, you know, some organizational reminders there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the point is, is that I, I, I don't find it most effective to be tied to something wow. that's uh, written before I'm going to do it. You know yeah. something I, I love I like about the, the briefing, Dr. Moeller, is I, I want to stay up to date on the culture and what's going on. I just don't have the time to hop on to all of the websites to follow all of the things. And something that's incredible and to know that it's not written is how concise yet thorough you are in such a short period of time on the briefing. It, it you really, it's like if you are, if you've got a short period of time and you want to be up to date, it's a great resource for that. So thank you for, for your work. In well, there. thank you for that word. You know, sometimes I feel like I just drone on on things uh, because, <laughs> because some of these issues are so big. Sure. And uh, I want Christians to be thinking about how to think Christianly about these issues. And, uh, you know, the world's not throwing as many small issues these days. They're, <laughs> right. they're all the big ones. Yeah. And, and that tells us something about the times in which we live. There, there are very few small skirmishes. Now, everything is, uh, is a pretty big issue. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Amen. You know, I wanted to ask you, as, as the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is one of the largest seminaries in the world, how would you describe the current state of the Christian academic world? We love to give things away. We love to give things away. And that's why we will do that every single day here on the Living Waters Podcast. That's right, friends. We're giving away goodies for those of you who go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form. We are giving 10, believe it or not, 10 different people each week goodies from Living Waters, $100 value for each box. You'll get tracts and books and a podcast mug and all kinds of good things. So make sure to participate at livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. And make sure to listen to the very end of the podcast where you will hear the announcement of the winners every week. Well, all those words are loaded, aren't they? Uh, Christian and academic and world. And uh, so I, I think the biggest problem is not whether or not these institutions are academic. There's certainly some questions there. But by and large, they're very academic. The question is whether they're very Christian. Yeah. And I think we have a great sift going on right now. We're about to find out who's going to stand. Oh. Just to take the LGBTQ issues alone. Right. You're going to see massive capitulation. Mm. And it's a reminder to us that vast cultural shifts often come on unpredicted issues. Yeah. So if you were you know, sitting in an evangelical strategy room 40 years ago, you wouldn't have come up with this as the issue. Mm. 
Right. Uh, but here we are. And even 15 years ago, you wouldn't think that we're at the level of, you know, people denying that there's an inherent creational distinction hmm. between male and female. Right. Right. You know, we're, in, we're in a society that wants to say a boy's a girl and a girl's a boy. Yeah. Okay, so that was not something that could have been foreseen uh, just a matter of decades ago. Yeah. Not so much in that people wouldn't make the argument. That's pretty old in human history. Sure. But that it would have cultural traction and gain maximum cultural momentum. Yeah. That's a very different thing. The challenge to Christian higher education is how in the world to hold to Christian truth and remain in that world of academic, let's just say self-referentialism. Mm. Because the academic world tries to reference only itself in terms <laughs> of defining who it is and what an academic institution should look like. And th- yeah. this means that the dominant elite liberal institutions really set the set the pace. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's not just that they do what they do. It's that every little community college wants to look like a little Harvard. Right. Mm. And the way to do that is, by the way, they're not going to get Harvard's buildings. They're not going to get Harvard's campus. <laughs> they're not going to get Harvard's logo. So what they try to do is use Harvard's ideas. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right. Oh, so you, you know, you said something that reminds me of uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Fall of the Modern yeah. Self, in which he talks about his grandfather coming coming home from Vietnam War. And if you were to say to his grandpa right. something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I'm a man living in a woman's body, he would have been like, that doesn't compute in my mind. And yet that's such a familiar phrase right. and surprisingly acceptable in this yeah. modern age. Yeah. yeah. You know, by the way, one of the, one of the issues before you get to male and female there, the I am a yeah. formula mm. is something that is extremely new no. because throughout virtually all of human history, you were told who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, your parents told you who you are. Your tribe told you who you are. Yeah. And uh, increasingly, as I say, as a boy, look, it was not just my parents told me who I am. It's not just that my extended family told me who I am and teachers told me who I am. And by the way, they were all agreed on that. <laughs> but it was that uh, a, a sweet, gospel-minded, Bible-believing local church told me who I am. Yeah. So the people around me did not say, look, uh, look at you're on an endless quest to try to discover who you are. Yeah. Instead, it is like Luther's small catechism for children. Right. You know, here's who you are. God made you, little one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know, Dr. Moeller, my dad, uh, he's, he's 112. He is uh, right now, by one of website's accounts, he's one of the, he's the oldest man in America. And he's gotten older, so his, his mind isn't all fully there. But he doesn't even really know about what's going on in our world today. The whole LGBTQ right, insanity, right, right. Uh, the whole transgenderism, the wokeness, all of that. It's just not even... So it's, it's almost like taking someone and transporting them from history and bringing them here. He was born in 1911. You know? That's incredible. And, and so Ray and I constantly step back and, and we say, what is going on? Like We're conscious of what's happening, but, but it's surreal. You have adults playing make-believe, right. playing dress-up, yeah. And everyone's going along. It's like the emperor's got no clothes. Mm. And, you know, it'd be bad enough if that's where this issue stayed. But that's not where this issue stays. Because any issue like this gets downshifted generationally. So right now, obviously, Christians should be concerned about a middle-aged man confused about this issue. Yeah, right. But there's a far greater tragedy when this confusion is being ideologically forced down on mm. nine-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 17-year-olds. Yeah. That is, that's really a form of the, well, let's just say it's a form of abuse. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the things, by the way, that Christian parents always need to keep in mind is that God put you there to tell you who your children are, yeah. to tell your children who they are. Yeah. 
And to point them to Scripture to know who they are, the Creator to know who they are, the Redeemer to know who they are. The the idea that we're on this endless personal quest is going to end in absolute disaster for all of humanity. We're not not capable of this. We're not competent. Right. And you throw on top of that the fact that these, these younger generations aren't being taught to think critically and you combine that with the pressure that's yeah. being put on them from, from adults, it's like, what's, what's the next generation going to be like? You know? Yeah, this is a very, very uh, odd thing. So it's, you mentioned that a lot of them don't think critically. I think you could argue that most human beings throughout human history have at least tried not to have to think very critically. <laughs> it, it, it just, yeah. uh, that, that's just a part of the human condition. It's like you know me. <laughs> well, well, and it's also, you know... It, it, most human beings throughout most of human history lived lives in which they didn't have to face conversations about these right. issues. Yes. It yeah. was a received world. Uh-huh. It, was a, it was an inherited world. It was a defined world. Mm. So this is something new in terms of it being like everybody's responsibility. Yeah. But the, the fact is that critical thinking is now defined by this culture as holding any claim of absolute truth mm. as oppressive. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, in other words, critical thinking is something that that Christians have to to capture and understand this is a part of the discipleship of the mind. I was a, one of in the generation so shaped by Francis Schaeffer and others Love you it. know about yeah. how to think as a Christian yeah right. and uh, I fear that I was actually a part of a generation that was better taught than so many young people now and what they're receiving, even in supposedly Christian churches. I think it's a, it's a, it's a sad it's a sad commentary that evangelicals kind of achieved a certain consensus in the nineteen say seventies that uh, in the sixties we're going to have to think seriously as Christians. We're going to have to we're going to have to actually teach young people some serious Bible. We're going to have to help them think what seriously novel in biblical terms. And now it's kind of like gone back to romper room. Yeah, practically no, speaking. True. Practically speaking, what, what wisdom would you give? What counsel would you give to parents? Because the reality is that, that it's obviously happening in the public school system, but it's even beyond that. I mean, someone just sent me a video clip of like this cartoon of the Transformers, and there was a robot telling a little girl that she's not a boy and not a girl. And the little girl was like, man, that, that, you know, you have to be a boy or a girl in my world. And then the robot says something like, oh, that's so strange and so weird. And, and so my point is that, is that this narrative is all around us. So what... What advice do you have to parents out there that want to give their children a biblical worldview and to prepare them for for the world around them? Yeah, my advice is do it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my first, my first advice and admonition. And Nike's very words. So. Yeah, d- I mean, do it. You you know what you need to do. Do it. You know, Christians need to recover the biblical conception of the fact that the family is to be the first school, the first church, yeah. and the first government. Amen. And uh, parents are God-ordained mm. to uh, fulfill that role in the first school and in the first church and in the first government. Yeah. That's good. And uh, so parents just, just do what Christians have understood Christian parents were responsible to do from the very beginning. It's not like this is new stuff. Right. You know, I tell people, look, Christian moms and dads had to get 15-year-old kids ready to go out on the streets of Rome hmm. when you had prostitutes advertising, you know, there in the marketplace, yeah. and when you had emperor worship as dominant in the age, and when when you had pornography, you know, as a matter yeah. of uh, public art, supposedly. In other words, Christians... Christians in early centuries had to figure this out. It's yeah. not like this is entirely new. Yeah, a lot of people think that yeah that it is new. Obviously, it takes new shapes and forms, and technology helps it to advance and and new. And I think uh, 
you know, very destructive ways. But yeah, Christians have been dealing with the, the common temptations to man throughout the centuries. And I think the problem is, especially in our day and age, is a lot of parents are, Christian parents are raising their kids by default rather than by design. There's no plan. Yeah. Right, right. And, and you know, you mentioned technology. That's not an irrelevant factor by any means. Yeah. Because it is also true that parents in the home used to define the reality that the child was exposed to. Mm, right. And I want to encourage parents to do that, by the way. Yeah. But I also want to encourage parents to recognize there are more limitations on that than you may recognize. And, yeah. and so you're fighting a much bigger battle and more urgent battle than, than it may seem. Because yeah. you mentioned even cartoon characters and all the rest. I, I will tell you, as a parent and as a grandparent, it's very shocking to know what kind of conversation could go on in a playground. Yeah. Mm. Unreal. Yeah. Somebody, maybe it was you, Easy, mentioned that this isn't new information in the sense that we've been facing these lies as Christians for the last 2,000 years. Larry Hurtado, the historian, does a really good job of explaining what Roman culture looked like in his book, Destroyer of the Gods. And so the, 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 I guess the point is... Uh, there's nothing new. We've been able to raise children in a godly manner in anti-gospel cultures before. And I think what you're getting at here by saying just do it is one of the things that I talk about often is is the importance of a family liturgy. Because if you think that, you know, well, I take our kids to church and, and they're there for 45 minutes and they get their Sunday school download and they go home. And then to your point, they're on TikTok, they're on Instagram, they're playing video games, they're on the park. And, and if that if that 45 minutes is your liturgy, you're being out-discipled by the world around you. Yeah, you know, it can take many different forms, but the logic of the Scripture is clear. Think of a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 6, and and there's a passage that Christians will understand with the ring of the familiar, but I, I don't think they often pause to understand what the Lord said through Moses to Israel. There, the children of Israel, who are after the generation of rebellion, are getting ready to enter the land of promise. And uh, you'll recall that God speaks through Moses and says, after the re-giving of the Ten Commandments, he said, now, when your son comes to you in days to come, saying, what are the meaning of the statutes and these commandments? Then you shall say to your son. Mm -hmm. And then it speaks to the diligence that Israel's parents are going to have to teach their children. And it says, and you're going out and you're coming in and you're standing up and you're sitting down. That's a Hebrew way of saying all the time. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) When you're breathing and when you're not breathing. You know, you need to be teaching your children the law of God. Teaching your children the word of God. And so I turn back to that text over and over again. And you know, the other sweet thing there is that phrase, which comes up again in Joshua chapter 4 and elsewhere. Mm. When your son asks you in days to come... What is the meaning of these stones, these laws, these commandments? Then you shall say to your son. Notice the pronoun there, your son. Mm. This is your responsibility. The future of Israel depends upon one father Mm. rightfully answering the question of one son. That's good. That's so good. Yeah, and we see that outlined in the Proverbs, you know, and and just that example of a father instructing his son. You know, I do have a question for you, and this would hit close to home for you as Uh a seminary president. With all of these regulations that keep coming down, and short of divine intervention, it's going to keep getting worse. How do Christian institutions like seminaries, Christian universities, and churches Mm -hmm. survive? I mean, what do we do when we're commanded to do things that obviously violate Scripture? Like you have to hire people from the LGBTQ community, or you have to do gay weddings, or what have you. Well, if the law comes with coercive force to say you have to do that, then disband the institution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ 
is what is central here. Yeah. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right. The church is fully empowered to accomplish everything that is yeah. assigned to it by the Amen. Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Seminaries are an extension of multiple churches saying, you know, we can pool our resources, we can pool our faithfulness in order to train pastors together. If the state says that institution has to be unfaithful, then just kill the institution. Wow. So I will say this as the president of what is arguably the largest theological seminary serving the largest evangelical denomination. If they say it's compromise or die, then kill it. Wow. I, I don't think it will come to that for all institutions for one reason, and that is we are entirely basically just owned and operated by the Southern Baptist Convention and its churches. Yeah. You know, our, our, our trustees are only the trustees elected by the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. In other words, we've got nowhere to go if the Southern Baptist Convention does its job. Right. Good. The other thing is, look, let's be really clear. We do not, at either the college or the seminary, we do not and have never taken a penny of tax money. Wow. The moment you take Caesar's money, guess what? Yeah. You know, Caesar comes in and tells you what to teach. Right. So we have a lot of Christian academic institutions are just absolutely dependent upon yeah. that federal funding through student loans and everything. We never played that game. So they That's can't good. even come at us retrospectively. Yeah. You know, it's, and I would say just stay, stay not only connected to the church, but absolutely accountable to the church. Yeah. You know, I think that people rule out that thought. I think a lot of times, unfortunately, Christian leaders of institutions and churches have this mindset and attitude of, well, obviously we have to keep going. So that I have, you, I have, I have especially college and university presidents say that to me. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I just have to say, no, you don't. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's and, and that's the problem, right? It's like, no, no, no. Obviously we've got to figure a way. How can we still stay and not compromise? But it always ends in compromise inevitably. If you're not willing to say, well, then let it die because we're, we're not going to compromise God's word. That's right. And you know, we're, we're about to find out where everybody stands. The great yeah. sift that's going on right now, it's going on so fast. Uh, one of the things I write and talk about a lot these days is the notion of social velocity. Yeah. Because, you know, through most of human history, that velocity has been really slow. Sure. <laughs> it's been, you know, basically you did what your father did, who did what his father did, who did what his father did. You're a blacksmith because sure. your whole family's made yeah. up of blacksmiths. Because yeah. your last name's Blacksmith. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but social velocity now is so fast that within a seven-year period in the United States, so whatever you think about the polls, they're at least, I think we know intuitively they're onto something here. When yeah. uh, in, in within a seven-year period, we went from seventy percent of Americans saying same-sex marriage should not be legal to seventy percent of Americans saying same-sex marriage should be legal. Right, right. Well, those by definition are kind of the same people. Yeah, and so that just shows you how the velocity of social change has has utterly transformed our times. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why people who think they're up to date hmm. oh, need yeah. to understand <laughs> that up to date is uh, is in terms of addressing these issues uh, a, a, a fatal assumption. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Doctor, let me ask you this. In light of the growing hostility toward Christianity in America, do you, do you personally sense that, that there is going to be a nuanced persecution coming our way? Yeah, it's interesting the way you put it, nuanced persecution. That's it's sort of like, you know, uh, um, liquid ice. <laughs> uh, you know, in other words, I don't know what, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I think what you mean is we're not at this point honestly talking about persecution 
where, as in the scripture where it says, you've not yet been yeah, persecuted. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I mean we, we're yeah, seeing yeah. forms of it here and there, but I'm talking right. in a major sense. You no, know, no, I get that. And so I, I just want to say, I'm always a little embarrassed in answering this question when I've been parts in parts of the world where mm. people are yeah. dying. That's good. That's uh, really true. Be, because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Mm. I think what we're going to face is the loss of social privilege, yeah. social status, mm. social standing. Yeah. Our social capital is going to be completely cashed out. We've got to raise children who are going to pay an enormous price professionally, personally, yep. relationally, and culturally, uh, just for identifying as a Christian in a serious way. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a, a radical reversal of the situation in this country uh, just yeah. over the last half century. To make your point, I think the very organized ways of attempting to marginalize Christians are already very much in play. Mm. And and so yeah. that is a form of persecution, yes. I just I just humbly want to be careful with the language. I'm saying they're gonna to try to marginalize silence. They're gonna make it as costly as possible to be a Christian. Yeah. I don't really foresee the day when armed troops show up at the door of the Calvary church and say, You can't preach the gospel anymore. Yeah, I think what they're going to do is the professions are going to say you can't be an attorney anymore. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think the prestigious universities are going to say you can't be a student here anymore. Some neighborhoods are going to say you can't live here anymore. Yeah, yeah. and so that's going to be an enormous cost. You know, sorry, Oscar, just real quick, I want to say this, and I'll let us, Oscar jump in. But I, I, not long ago, I spoke at a, at a pretty prestigious Christian university, and and I wondered after after I left there about the name and, and how that's going to look on. The, the students' resumes as things get worse for Christians because it had a very pronounced Christian name. And I just thought, right. man, how, you know, how's that going to, oh, you graduated from, you know, such and such Christian university? Right. We've got a problem. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a brilliant thought. And it's something that I'm, I'm watching right now. So, for instance, the New York Times had a big story about a, a, a Christian college, historic Christian college in New York mm-hmm. that had uh, fired a couple of people over LGBTQ issues. And uh, the interesting thing is, and this is a phenomenon you got to watch, the press immediately went to the LGBTQ alumni of that college who had already organized. And so you can see, okay, so this is an effort just to try to shame this college, supposedly with its own alumni. Now, I want to say in defense of any college, okay, doesn't mean to say this, just like of any pastor, Mm -hmm. there are going to be some people who are former members of your church for whom you are simply not responsible, <laughs> except for the former part. Yeah, right. You know, and and, and and there are some there are some graduates of every institution that know if, if you're of any size that you. But it, it depends upon what does the institution believe, what does it teach, and, and what does it hold without reservation, without yeah. hesitation. Mm. And that that's where I think you're going to see an awful lot of these schools where people are going to say. You know, you're hurting my professional chances when the school takes this stand. Uh, you know, you, right. you, you are discounting the value. And, and understand, this can get to litigation. You're discounting the value of my degree wow. when you take that kind of stand. Right. And uh, we're about to find out where everybody is. It's not only the schools, but the alumni of those schools. We're about yeah. to find out where they are, too. Yeah. yeah. We're talking a lot about all of these cultural issues, whether it's LGBTQ, education, students. As a, the, the conservative in me... Uh-huh. could get scared and hopeless. Yeah. But the Christian has hope. Talk about, because you are on the front lines. I feel like you better than, than most know the dangers. How in the midst of all of the news that's coming out, do you have, how does the gospel inform your hopefulness in the midst of all this? Yeah, this is where I want to put two words and say they're not identical, 
but like a Venn diagram, they overlap a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you use the word conservative and the word Christian. People don't recognize that both Christianity and conservatism are based upon the understanding that things are about to get worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is simply because of the effect of sin and uh, the consequences of God's judgment. And so the whole essence of the word conservatism comes down to conserve, and it's the attempt to conserve the principles, the first things, the truths that are endangered by those who want to unravel them. Right. So you're trying to conserve them. You're going to try to conserve marriage, mm-hmm. conserve the family, conserve religious liberty. Christianity is based in a, a biblical understanding, and I think it was Augustine, uh, the, the early church father, who really got to this more clearly than anyone else, which is the world is about to get worse. So, preach the gospel, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, mm. and buy a, buy a piece of property and plant seeds and show the glory of God, because <laughs> things can get a lot worse in the society and actually get better for the church wow. and better for the family. Yes. Mm. Uh, simply by contrast, the issue is we've got to see what is the coming thing and what is the passing thing and make certain that we are staking our lives on the coming thing, not the passing Amen. thing. Yeah. yeah, and I love I love to look at that. I love that you, you mentioned Augustine, and I love to look at the early church because, as mentioned before, they faced a, an anti-Christian culture in Rome, right? Like right. they were at, at one point after Constantine, they were kicked out of the public sphere. They were kicked out of education, and yet it was in the midst of that, let's call it social persecution. Yep. In the yep. midst of that social persecution is where the church exists exploded because the gospel faithful Christians proclaimed the gospel and raised their children in the midst of that and so in some ways you, yeah. you mentioned sifting and I think of first Peter the refining by fire one of the the hopes is, is is one of the good things is while the fire hurts and it's burning up the impurities it also creates something way more refined and dare I say way more potent and so the hope, I think, comes from, from history, and it comes from a promise, of course, of our Savior in which he says the gates of hell will not prevail against right. and the Right, and the, the Scripture gives us an understanding of the unfolding of history. So mm-hmm. it's not like we're left in a great mystery as to yeah. how the story ends. Right. With, but with creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, we, we know two things in a Christian eschatology. We know, number one, this world is going to pass away. Yeah. We also know that in the kingdom of Christ, all things will be made well. We're never promised that in this world, all things will be made right. well. We're told the opposite. Yeah. And and it's going to be a fight to the very end. You know, you read the book of Revelation, yeah. things just don't get better and better. That was the old Protestant liberalism of the 20th century, <laughs> and, I mean, it, it, which, by the way, was pretty much destroyed by two world wars and a holocaust. Right. One other thought here for, for uh, Christians is that there, there's this really good biblical argument for finding hope First of all, of course, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But finding hope in the fact that God has given us creation order gifts, which we are to use in the kingdom of Christ in this world as it's visible, to show the glory of God, what Mm. obedience to the scripture looks like. So we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. By the way, if you're going to raise them, you've got to have them. (laughs) And uh, that means we honor marriage. We, we, We go back to the first principles. We live by the first things. We go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Amen. And then, you know, I think of Jeremiah, because I mentioned Augustine. One of the heresies that Augustine had to face in the late Roman Empire was Christians who said, none of this matters, so don't plant any more crops. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Augustine came back. Uh, actually, the Pelagians made that argument. And Augustine comes back and says, no, 
plant the field. That's what God's commanded us to do. Right? And, and by the way, there are many good things to planting a field. Number one, there's an organic reality there. Number two, you get to feed your family. Number two, you keep the kids busy. But, uh, but beyond that, the other thing is remember that that's in the Old Testament. Even in exile, yeah. through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says... Buy a field yeah. and plant it. Yes. Oh, There's so good, good work for us to do. Yeah. Amen. Love you know, that. Doctor, I have one more question mm-hmm. before we wrap up here. You know, while we can never sacrifice truth on the altar of unity, we've seen what's happened in the, in the ecumenical world. We don't want that as Christians. But at the same time, how do we promote unity, especially in these times, between churches, Christians, who may differ on secondary, tertiary issues, for the sake of the gospel and influencing the culture. Yeah, it's becoming increasingly difficult for the reason that, um, you know, Christians often do not think about what is the necessary ground of doctrinal agreement yeah. for us to do X or Y. Like, if you want to be a member of my church, you got to go with the entire confession of faith. If we're talking about going to share the gospel with people in a foreign land, I can... Uh, I can do that with someone who may disagree with me on eschatology. Yeah. Again, we're living in an age of such theological apostasy. The problem is that there are a lot of churches that, frankly, are the enemies of the gospel. Right. And, and so I honestly think that this is one of those situations in which pastors and Christians have to have just constant vigilance and, and constant attention. Yeah. But the unity of the church of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in Christ. Yeah. So we do not achieve that unity. It is accomplished by Christ. The question is, how do faithful churches honor Christ in such a way that we will find gospel churches doing the right kind of gospel work? Mm. And uh, I do think the what you talked about is uh, kind of a nuanced persecution. I do think the uh, the context in which we are now is that pretty fast. We're figuring out who's standing by the gospel. We're yeah. pretty much figuring out which churches are ordered by scripture. Mm. Yeah. We're finding out the hard way, but we're finding out. Yeah. Sure. Wow. That's great. Well, Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, this has been pretty much fellowship for us. I know I'm walking away edified. I know Oscar is yeah. as well. Thank you again for just standing on the front lines and for fighting and being an example to so many of us because those examples are getting fewer and fewer, unfortunately. And so we're grateful for you. We know there's the briefing. Is there any anywhere else that people can connect with you? And well, the entire doing? website, albertmuller.com, the briefing's five days a week. We also I also do the program Thinking in Public, where I'm in conversation with uh, people I think Christians ought to, uh, to think about. Yeah. And sometimes that means people who are certainly not Christians, hmm. you know, just to get their ideas out there. And uh, I, I, I think that's one of the fun things that Christians can do. It's one thing that Christian parents can do with their kids. Yeah. And that is, watch Christians thinking and say, well, how faithful was that? Hmm. What can we learn from that? Yeah. Here's a clash of worldviews. We're not afraid of that. We that's want to great. understand what's going on there. We want to prepare you for that. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks again for joining us. And again, I hope we get the privilege to connect again with you in the future. I'm going to count on it. (laughs) Thank you. I love meeting brilliant people. Thank you. Who, unlike Oscar, are also godly people who demonstrate that in their lives. You know, I recently saw a post by Dr. Moeller where he called his wife Magnificent Mary, and he was just being very sweet about her. Uh, it was, I think it was her birthday in his post. And I love that. Men that are not so busy with the master's work that they're too busy for the master. 
and and that's evidenced in the way that they love their family and mm. and others. And Do you think so, in the morning he wakes up and is like, "It's June twentieth, twenty twenty three, and here <laughs> is your coffee." Oh, Mark, the briefing's pretty brilliant, isn't it? It is. It's about twenty four to twenty five minutes long, and I don't know how he keeps up with it, but it's every day, uh, Monday through Friday. He does take a, I think, a month off sometime during the year. Yeah. To tend to his chickens. <laughs> He'll probably get some now. Yeah. Ray, I think people hear Dr. Moeller and they, they heard what we discussed with him and how he just kind of comes up with those things on the spot. He has to because the news has happened so fast. But we're all so different. And I think sometimes people are tripped out by how quickly you can write a book. I mean, you've written over 100. Is it? An yesterday. urgency to get, is it an urgency to get it done, or do you enjoy the process? It's an urgency to get it done, and I enjoy the process. <laughs> Both. <laughs> you had your talking points given Deep to you by me. Deep thoughts with Raycom. Yeah. <laughs> but Ray, seriously, what is behind that, your, your prolific kind of approach to writing? I hated writing when I was in school. I, I was in English. I, don't, I just scraped past past English. Yeah. And if you didn't pass English, you just didn't move on. You didn't graduate. And, uh, but when I became a Christian, I had something to write about. I think Amen. that's it. That's it. That's a yeah. passion. And, and that thought of the outcome and the repercussions of, of doing that, people being touched. Yeah. That's good. All right, friends, we hope you enjoyed that wonderful interview with Dr. Albert Moeller. Don't forget Divine Dining, Foods from the Bible, the Evidence Study Bible, and the Living Waters podcast mug, alllivingwaters.com. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you here next time. Did you just yawn, Ray? I saw Oscar yawn, and he started me off. Oh. I've been <laughs> I was just thinking we've done it. It's a contagious yawning. We've spent, what, four hours podcasting We've done today. a lot of podcasting. Since 9 a.m. Yeah. All right, friends. Once again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you here next time on the Living Waters podcast, where we have no idea, although Dr. Albert Moeller has many ideas, what he's doing. We have no idea what we're doing. Winners, winners, winners. That's you, friends. Those of you who I'm about to announce are the winners of this week's podcast giveaway on the Living Waters podcast. We've got Carlos from Lamont, California, Daniel from Jamestown, North Carolina, Ed Washburn from Tennessee, David Norwood from North Carolina, Doug Campobello from South Carolina, Ali from Falls Church, Virginia, Adrian from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Joshua from Excelsior Springs, Missouri, Eva from Bow Island, Canada, and Penelope from Bardwell Park, Australia. Shout out to the Aussies and the Canadians out there. Friends, you can get this too, those of you who are listening. Just share the word and sign up for the Living Waters podcast.